This is a Federal News Network podcast. The emergence of racial protests and the coming of a contentious election have all made work for the Office of Special Counsel. Everyone needs to walk a fine line between allowable talk and politicking. Joining me for an update, Special Counsel Henry Kerner. Mr. Kerner, welcome back. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me on. And I was thinking about you when uh, you issued a ruling, a finding not too long ago about support and language with respect to the Black Lives Matter movement in the federal workplace. And it seems like that is allowable, but only within certain conditions. And just review for us what it is you determined. Sure, sure. Thanks. Um, So obviously the uh, Black Lives Matter um, uh, topic and the, the group itself also are hot button issue. And so we've gotten a lot of uh, questions, um, and pursuant to that, our, our professionals in the Hatch Act unit, uh, who are civil servants, so they're not, they're not political actors, uh, issued what we call an advisory. And that's part of our Hatch Act function. We're allowed to issue advisories, and we try to do that in order to educate the federal workforce. Now, in terms of the uh, Black Lives Matter issue, uh, we look at the terms of political activity. And so people need to be aware of the fact that the term political activity can be confusing because when people hear political activity, they may understand a whole host of things, including legislation, lobbying of elected officials. But in the Hatch Act context, political activity has a very specific definition, and it's defined as activity directed toward the success or failure of a political party or a partisan political group or a candidate for partisan political office. So it'd be helpful to think of the Hatch Act as focusing on the electoral process, which is just one part of the larger political process. And so at the end of the day, our Hatch Act unit posed a question to itself, if you will. If an employee says to a coworker, I think we should all support or oppose Black Lives Matter or the Tea Party, as you know, we go back a few years, can we prove to a judge that those statements meet the Hatch Act definition of political activity? Once again, activity directed toward the success of political parties or groups or candidates. Um, and the answer appears that we think is no. And so we've applied the same analysis to the Black Lives Matter issue as, as the Hatch Act unit prior to my tenure had also done with the Tea Party when that became uh, an electoral issue back in 2011. So there was precedent there, in other words. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, they're non-politicals. They're not, they're not taking issue with the message. They're just trying to see what its impact is on the electoral, you know, political activity uh, towards the you know, political party. So they're just looking at the electoral process. Uh, and, and that's what they focused on. And based on the precedent of the Tea Party, the view of the Hatch Act unit in my office was that Black Lives Matter is issue-specific. It's about addressing uh, racial justice. Tea Party was about government spending. And so because they're issue-related, they are not violations of of the electoral prohibitions. So as a practical matter, then wearing a Black Lives Matter or a Tea Party T-shirt into the office would not be the same as wearing a Biden or Trump T-shirt to the office. That's correct. Now, having said that, I want to be very clear, which is just because the Hatch Act isn't violated, obviously, uh, and also let me make clear, the Hatch Act could be violated if you're wearing a BLM hat or, or something and say, because we support Black Lives Matter, you should, you should vote for a particular candidate. So it can be connected to political activity. And in addition, of course, agencies have policies 
on political expression and other things. Federal workers are expected to work for all taxpayers and to keep politics largely out of the workplace. So to the extent that there are uh, laws and ethics uh, policies outside of the Hatch Act, they could be applicable, and employees should check with their respective ethics officers. I guess if you take any position, regardless of what it might be, and push it to uh, an overly zealous degree, that could create hostile working conditions or just an unpleasant office, which you wouldn't want to do anyway. Exactly, exactly. And so from an agency head perspective, we try to create an inclusive office uh, environment where everybody's uh, views are heard and where people are you know, doing the, the work that the taxpayers expect us to do and not bickering over, over you know, each other's political views. Sure. So, but from the Hatch Act perspective, I think it's just important to point out that's only one specific law, and our advisory has held that, that the Black Lives Matter uh, sort of issue, if you will, did not violate the Hatch Act. We're speaking with Henry Kerner, the special counsel of the Independent Office of Special Counsel, And we do have an election coming up, and I think it's fair to say it's going to be contentious. And you've already had some (laughs) violations that are pretty visible that you've issued press releases on. Just a quick reminder, maybe, for people now that the (laughs) non-conventions are at hand, uh, what uh, what are some of the things to avoid in this season? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as as always, you know, as we approach, this is our tax season in the Hatch Act unit. So this is, you know, right before April 15th most years. And because of that, there's always an increase in Hatch Act complaints. And this year is, of course, no different. Uh, so the three things to really think about are there are two 24-7 prohibitions on uh, federal employees. One is they cannot solicit or accept political uh, f- fundraising for political parties. So that includes posting or liking messages on social media that solicit money for candidates or parties. So the m- fundraising is out. Uh, the, the other 24-7 prohibition, uh, so, you know, that's uh, at all times, is they cannot use their official authority uh, to influence or affect an election. So if employees do engage in political activity, they must do so on their own time, and they must do so in their personal capacity and not representing their government uh, agency. So, for example, employees who give media interviews in their official capacity cannot express support for or opposition to candidates for partisan political office during those official interviews. And the last one is the one that's probably most that we get the most complaints on, and that's political activity on duty, especially relating to social media. And now, you know, obviously we're we're dealing with a lot of folks who are teleworking. So, what does on duty mean in a teleworking environment? Well, on duty means that if, if the employee is in what's called a pay status, other than paid leave, if you're on paid vacation, that's one thing. But if you're in a pay status, even if you're at home, you, there are certain restrictions. Employees are on duty when they are working, even when they are teleworking, and they cannot post their views about a candidate on social media, wear campaign T-shirts or hats while participating in you know, Zoom calls, etc., or display partisan materials like campaign signs or candidate pictures during such calls, forward or send emails or texts about candidates, or engage in campaign-related volunteer work. So those are the three main restrictions that that people we'd like to remind people to be wary of. Yes, you've answered my question that I was going to ask, and that is when you are on a telecall, televideo call, you have to be as if you were in the office 
terms of the accoutrements exactly. and what it is you display. Exactly. And we've had this. We're on a Zoom call or something. You see someone and they've got a sticker for a, a candidate in the back. And, you know, you just have to cover those up. You can't have them. And I wanted to ask you about something unrelated. And that is a report that came out sure. back in June that OSC found a software flaw in the Treasury Department and yep. resulted in improper payments. And I just wonder how that came to the Office of Special Counsel, of all things, and how did, how did you discover it? <laughs> yes, well, thank you for asking about that. So one of the things that the Office of Special Counsel is, is able to do is we're a safe channel for disclosures, disclosures of wrongdoing uh, in the health and safety context. That comes up with COVID a lot now, but also for uh, abuses of gross waste, gross waste of, uh, of funds. And so we had an anonymous whistleblower who incidentally, and this was kind of unusual, had personal knowledge of two agencies, Treasury and Labor, uh, where he knew about a software glitch. So OSHA, which is under, under the Department of Labor, uh, fines employers for various work safe, uh, excuse me, workplace safety violations. And there were about 11,000 of these delinquent fines. And what OSHA then did is it transferred it to the Treasury Department for collection. However, there was a software glitch, which, which our anonymous whistleblower identified, which prevented the transfer from, from uh, including the, the delinquent business owner's contact information. Well, the contact information was essential because prior to collecting these fines, Treasury needed to send a demand letter. Because they didn't have the contact information, they were unable to send a demand letter. No demand letters were out, and no money was collected. Once, the, uh, once we were able to refer it to both uh, Labor and Treasury, they both sub substantiated the allegations, fixed the software error, and have begun collecting the $92 million in uncollected debts. Importantly, let me just add one more thing. That was only OSHA. Apparently, there are 12 additional federal agencies unrelated to OSHA that also had uh, delinquent fines and that the Treasury Department uh, also wasn't collecting due to this glitch. They are working on a supplemental report to us, which we expect in the fall, that will lay out, uh, uh, you know, once they fix it, the collection of, of millions of more, of more dollars of taxpayer money that we're helping collect. And had the whistleblower notified the agencies and just didn't get a good answer? Uh, typically what happens is they do let folks know, you know, up the chain. I don't know in this particular case, um, but they are always welcome to come to us. I mean, we, like I said, we represent a safe channel for them to, uh, to uh, make this disclosure. And this case has saved a lot of money, already $92 million. Yeah, I would say that also that you would think the agencies would wonder, how come no money is coming in from all these fines we've levied? <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, they, they would. But I think what happens is a lot of times when you have multiple agencies involved, it sort of becomes a little bit less clear on who's, who's sort of where in the process it is. And like I said, because they didn't have those, uh, the contact information, they weren't able to send out demand letters and even start the process. Well, lesson learned, I guess. <laughs> Call Henry if anything <laughs> else fails and the money's not coming in. <laughs> I think it's good. I, I, yeah, I think, I think it's in the interest of everyone, right? Obviously, the taxpayers, you know, that's $92 million. That's taxpayer money. Obviously, the agencies, I think, are grateful that, that they were able to fix the, the glitch. So I think we, do, we did aid them in that. And tell us about some of the measures you've taken during the pandemic to address the personal issues your own employees might be dealing with. I think there's some instruction here for lots of federal agencies. Yeah, so a couple of things. So 
the health and safety of my employees obviously is priority one. And so the first thing is we went to mandatory telework, mandatory precautionary telework, as we called it, starting March 16th, which I think was among the earliest agencies. There was a couple others. but So we went to mandatory telework so people are not in the office. Um, you know, we do have occasionally people here, but it's, you know, social distancing, masks, et cetera. And then so on top of the, that, that, we also worry about the mental, mental health. So one of the things we've done is we have established something called Wellness Wednesdays. Not our creation, we took that. But, um, and it basically is a program that's completely voluntary, that involves a guest speaker. We've had yoga instructors. We've had meditation people. We've had um, uh, you know people from the equity department, sort of the inclusion and equity departments at at the Bureau of Prison who spoke about to give context and allow people to express their feelings about some of the uh, civil unrest after the killing of George Floyd. We've had pets. Today we have pets, so people can sort of show their pets, and other people can enjoy seeing cats and dogs. As you may know, during the pandemic, there's been a huge rush on adopting animals, so I think that's good. And also, we check, we, we try to check in with folks because they don't have the opportunity to see each other at the office. They don't have that. They're worried about you know COVID. They're worried about their children and their education. They're worried about their parents a lot of times, or maybe some elderly relatives who may be affected. They're worried about their own health. And so I've been very concerned about trying to assist folks with the mental health aspect, not just in terms of getting getting you know excellent results for our stakeholders that said and i'm just unbelievably proud we had our best quarter last quarter in terms of getting favorable actions for whistleblowers we had 105 which is the highest number in osc history and so that really speaks to the kind of uh, efficiency and 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 uh, you know ability of of our employees who are all working from home to still get the work done and you know, I'm a I'm an older gentleman, so I come from a from a sort of perspective where you got to be in the office. But I have been incredibly impressed, and frankly, had my mind changed about teleworking. I don't think we want to do 100% teleworking because of the absence of seeing people and having that the, the community. But I definitely think that even in the post-COVID era, some portion of teleworking has been incredibly uh, productive, and I've been very impressed with the uh, professionalism of the OSC workforce. Interesting. People are working harder than ever, but yet there's kind of a psychic toll that the general environment seems to be taking on people. Yes, exactly. And you have a COVID task force. Tell us what that is and what it does. Yeah, the talk, I'm very proud of the COVID task force. So on February 27, we got our first case, and then cases started coming in. Now, most of those cases initially were related primarily to health and safety concerns. So we would have whistleblowers who would say, hey, I have asthma, I have a weak heart, and yet my agency's detailing me to a COVID tent, and I have to do COVID checks with people, obviously some of whom are likely to be positive, and I don't have enough PPE, you know, protective gear, and I have this, this prior health condition. And what we did is we established a COVID task force that, that took resources and members from different units, from our disclosure unit, as well as our different uh, prohibited personnel practice units. We put them all together, and by marshalling these resources, we were able to course correct a lot of these cases in, in much, much faster time. So a lot of times we would call over to the agency and we would get them to rescind that detail, for example, or provide the PPE to folks. And, and, that, and, 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 and on top of that, we also were able to refer a lot of these cases. We've had since excuse me, February 27th, we've had 78 total disclosure cases. 
And in addition to that, we've had 95 complaints of prohibited personnel practices. So that's about 173 cases. Um, and like I said, we're handling them in the task force. A lot of, a lot of them are handled very quickly. Uh, we have what, what we call these course corrections or immediate actions. We close them quickly, too. And uh, we've, ha- we've have been able to, to save lives, basically, you know, by alerting agencies to where they might have these very uh, unsafe conditions that under COVID can really endanger people's lives. In other words, word came into OSC from employees concerned that they were being exposed or others in their agencies were being exposed or maybe people had it and were coming to work anyway. Exactly. All those things. We've seen all of that. All right. Henry Kerner is special counsel in the Independent Office of Special Counsel. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.